Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Hello, listeners. Thanks for finding your way to this episode of The Mod Pod. I'm pretty sure you're going to like the assortment of articles we have in store for you this month. There's no connecting theme, so you're just going to have to trust me. You're not going to walk away chuckling, but you will learn a thing or two. Let's start with a topic that, although serious, is too often ignored, and that's physician burnout and its implications. Richard Mangan, assistant professor and clinical faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in the Department of Ophthalmology in Boulder, Colorado, tackles this sobering topic. Have a listen. In recent years, a growing body of evidence has demonstrated a greater prevalence of occupational burnout among physicians compared with the general workforce. Physician burnout was already an epidemic concern in the United States and abroad before the worldwide COVID-19 pandemic. Estimates suggest that at any given time, one in three healthcare providers is experiencing burnout with certain subspecialties regularly topping the list. According to the Medscape National Physician Burnout and Suicide Report of 2020, 42% of physicians described feeling burned out, down from 46% in 2015. Those in the profession of ophthalmology had a 30% burnout rate. Unfortunately, optometric physicians were not included in this survey. What do we mean when we use the word burnout? Burnout is defined as a combination of exhaustion, cynicism, and perceived inefficiency resulting from the long-term job stress. It's important to note that burnout and depression are not the same, although burnout can lead to depression. Overwhelming workload, long hours, and lack of support have traditionally been top causes for physician burnout. Other causes include but are not limited to lack of respect from administrators, employers, colleagues, or staff, a growing lack of respect or cynicism from patients, increasing computerization of practice, insufficient compensation and reimbursement, increasing government regulation, and lack of control or autonomy. This list of causes also supports findings indicating that burnout is more prevalent in large healthcare organizations fraught with red tape and bureaucracy as compared with the autonomy one experiences in a smaller private practice. With that said, private practices are on the decline due to the ever-increasing cost coupled with declining reimbursements. Physician burnout has been linked to a number of adverse consequences. For example, lower patient satisfaction and decreased quality of care, increased medical error rates and malpractice risk, increased physician and staff turnover, physician drug and alcohol abuse or addiction, and yes, physician suicide. Yes, burnout among physicians can have fatal consequences. According to Dyke Drummond, MD, a leading author and consultant on the subject, suicide rates for both men and women 
are higher in physicians than the general population and are widely underreported. Many healthcare settings, including hospitals and universities, have begun implementing wellness programs to combat physician and healthcare workout burnout, but physicians are sometimes reluctant to seek help for fear of being labeled or potentially losing their jobs. Notably, some of the character traits that are essential to making it through an optometry or medical school program, for example, workaholism, perfectionism, and the perceived or unperceived need to micromanage, are the same as those that can also lead one down the path to burnout. Many physicians experiencing burnout develop positive coping mechanisms such as starting or increasing exercise, improving sleep habits, listening to music, meditating, perhaps doing yoga, and especially seeking professional counseling. Others may resort to more harmful methods of coping, such as recreational drug use, abuse of prescription pain medication or alcohol, binge eating, or increased nicotine use. Physician burnout can lead to clinical depression, and if not addressed in a positive way, Depression can lead to suicide or suicide attempts, as noted above. Sadly, an estimated 300 to 400 physicians commit suicide each year. The Medscape National Physician Burnout and Suicide Report in 2020 found that physicians in Generation X reported noticeably more burnout than those in, than those in other groups. Millennials came in at 38%. Generation X at 48%, while baby boomers came in at 39%. Mid-career, which is where Generation Xers are currently, tends to trend higher for physician burnout, as this is the time when most physicians are not only juggling their careers, but also caring for young children and possibly elderly parents. For those reasons, female physicians also tend to consistently trend higher than men for burnout as they are more likely to be the primary caregivers in the home. According to Haley Fisher-Wright, MD and CEO of the Medical Group Management Association, female physicians tend to take on more, quote, non-promotable, unquote, work and carry more of the weight in collaborative work as they tend to care significantly about the collective well-being of their colleagues. With regard to race and ethnicity, in a cross-sectional study of U.S. physicians by Garcia and colleagues, Hispanic or Latino, Black, and Asian physicians were less likely to report burnout when compared with white or Caucasian physicians. Data analysis of over 4,000 physicians using the Maslach Burnout Inventory was conducted to model three burnout dimensions, the first being emotional exhaustion, the second being depersonalization, and finally a diminished sense of personal accomplishment. In this national sample of physicians, minority racial or ethnic groups experienced less emotional exhaustion, and black physicians were more likely to report satisfaction with work-life integration than white physicians. No other st statistically significant observations were made. How has the COVID-19 pandemic affected burnout rates? Among women, physician burnout rates increased to as high as 51%, a finding believed to be largely influenced by pressing needs at home due to lockdowns. For example, childcare, homeschooling, elder care, etc. 
This is coupled with responsibilities on the front lines of their patient care. In one report, nearly 80% of physicians said they felt burned out prior to the pandemic, though one in five reported that their burnout emerged during the pandemic. As hospitals were overwhelmed and clinics short-staffed, frontline healthcare workers also had to deal with uncertainty regarding their personal and family health risks. Given this situation, it is understandable that specialists in the fields of critical care, rheumatology, and infectious disease reached new heights in physician burnout rankings since Medscape began surveying on the issue in 2013. We entered this profession to take care of the eyes and vision of our patients, but as is this case with many professionals, our role extends far outside that simple description. Many of us find our personal and family time limited as we travel to conferences, serve on advisory boards, and accept speaking and writing invitations. It's all too easy for physicians, no matter the specialty, to overextend themselves, feeling a never-ending sense of dread. If this is you, know that you're not alone and that things can change. If you are concerned about whether you or your physician's spouse or friend are affected by burnout, consider visiting this following website, www.amaalliance.org backslash physician burnout. Additionally, the Medscape National Physician Burnout and Suicide Report offers a 12-question quiz that can provide insight and guidance based on your score. There are a number of helpful resources, including steps on how to affect change. Also keep in mind that the AOA also can be a valuable resource if there's concern about burnout. I know we didn't exactly start out on a high note, but mental health is important and should be addressed. We all experience stress, but when it leads to burnout that is not managed properly, as Dr. Mangan noted, the consequences can be dire. If you know of anyone having a rough time, consider some of the resources shared in this article, which is also available online. The time you take to reach out to someone in need could make a world of difference. All right, ready to move on? Then let's go to Scott Halsworth, an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in Aurora, Colorado. He's going to provide some tips for identifying and managing neuropathic pain in patients with dry eye. The cornea is the most richly innervated structure in the human body, with 7,000 sensory nociceptors per square millimeter providing the means to monitor for touch, heat, cold, and noxious stimuli. This innervation provides a wealth of information to the brain, which then responds and makes adjustments to maintain homeostasis of the ocular surface. Homeostasis includes protection and lubrication of the ocular surface via basal and reflex tear secretion, as well as the blink reflex. When patients describe how their eyes are feeling to us, we assume that those descriptions of sensations of discomfort, such as burning or grittiness, are accurate and are caused by actual stimuli proportionate to the level of discomfort. What we're actually assuming is that our patient's neurosensory systems are functioning normally and that the descriptors they use arise from actual physical stimuli. However, what if we were to assume that the symptoms our patients were describing were modified in some way, or that they were not caused by physical stimuli. How might that change our approach to managing these patients? 
Perhaps more importantly, how would we recognize that this dysfunction exists in any given patient at any time? It's been a recognized and accepted frustration among clinicians that in the management of dry eye disease, there is often a discrepancy between symptoms and clinical signs. This is extremely frustrating. We all likely have seen patients who present with significant symptoms of severe irritation or pain, but when we look at how the ocular surface is, there is minimal, if any, signs of ocular surface disease. Conversely, it's also likely that we've been puzzled by patients who present with diffuse corneal epitheliopathy, a sign of severe ocular surface disease, who paradoxically express no complaint of discomfort. The key to understanding both of these clinical pictures is to account for alterations in the function of the neurosensory system. But how does this happen? Neuropathic pain is defined by the International Association for the Study of Pain as, quote, pain initiated or caused by a primary lesion or dysfunction of the nervous system, end quote. This may arise from injury to the peripheral corneal nerves and nociceptors or from systemic injury or illness. The most peripheral portion of the neurosensory pathway begins at the nociceptors, which exist in several subtypes to detect different stimuli that may cause harm to the tissues of the ocular surface, such as heat, cold, mechanical stimuli, and several types of chemical stimuli. When these nociceptors are triggered, a signal is generated that is then conducted upwards through the first and second order neurons and then to the thalamus for the perception of the sensation of pain, kind of like a game of telephone. However, if there is injury or inflammation to the ocular surface, pro-inflammatory mediators released in the cornea may cause damage to the peripheral axons located therein, leading to a process called peripheral sensitization, which lowers the activation threshold and intensifies the signal. It's akin to making the signal stronger and easier to travel up the chain. This sensitization causes the patient to have an increased perception of discomfort even when the stimulus is mild. Think of patients who develop pain when they're exposed to a gentle breeze or light um, air current. In addition, because the upward traveling signal is intensified and our neurologic systems are plastic and can change over time based on stimulus, this increased signal may cause lowering of the thresholds at the synapses between the first and second order neurons, which may eventually lead to pain that occurs independently of what is occurring at the cornea. Peripheral contributors to peripheral sensitization include dry eye disease, ocular surgery, and ocular infection. Any insult to the surface of the eye, essentially. Systemic conditions that may also contribute include systemic disorders such as fibromyalgia, which is very common, or other nerve-based disorders such as small fiber and polyneuropathy. Autoimmune diseases such as fibromyalgia create higher amounts of inflammation in the body. So the presence of cytokines that are pro-inflammatory, such as interleukin-1, tumor necrosis factor alpha, and others increase the chances of the neurologic signal becoming altered at the synapse leading to amplification of the signal and intensification of the symptoms. Again, the inflammation that's present in the cornea and in the body tend to cause that sensitization and amplify the signals. In addition, comorbid conditions associated with neuropathic pain 
include anxiety and depression. It's difficult to say whether the fact that they're experiencing chronic pain causes them to increase the amount of depression and anxiety, or whether those comorbidities, because they occur and affect the emotions of the patient, may cause a change in the signal as well, or cause it to be more likely to develop into a neuropathic situation. Now, there is little real understanding about how frequently neurosensory dysfunction occurs in clinical practice. We haven't really looked at this aspect to this date. So a first of its kind multi-center study is now underway in an attempt to establish the prevalence of neuropathic pain in patients with dry eye disease. Begun earlier this year, the neurosensory abnormalities in symptomatic ocular surface patients, also called NASA, N-A-S-A, uh, found under National Clinical Trials Registry 04838223, is a single-visit observational study being conducted at 22 locations across the United States involving both optometry and ophthalmology practices. The study is set up as a single visit and involves assessment of symptoms as well as stressing the neurosensory system for a response. Several centers will also contribute by imaging the subbasal nerve plexus and screening for anatomic changes to the corneal nerves to see if there are further information that we can obtain by studying the anatomy in addition to along with the neurosensory changes. Diagnosis of neuropathic pain is challenging, to say the least. Um, it is often a diagnosis of exclusion. A careful history should be taken to determine if there was an initial triggering event, such as surgery, previous infection, or other insult, as well as the analysis of symptomology. Have the patient explain to you what exactly they feel, other than dryness or grittiness. Try to have them be as specific as possible. In many instances, however, identifying neuropathic disease, again, is a process of exclusion. Symptoms may be quantified using validated questionnaires, much as they are in dry eye, using things like the Ocular Surface Disease Index, or OSDI, or the SPEED, uh, the Standardized Patient Evaluation of Eye Dryness, or Ocular Pain Assessment Survey, uh, also called the OPAS. That one was in particular developed specifically to assess pain as well as to identify the degree by which different stimuli increase that pain. So that one can be very helpful in a clinical setting. Thorough diagnostic testing should be performed to rule out other sources of discomfort. Examination of the cornea and ocular surface via biomicroscopy and vital dye testing using both sodium fluorescein and lysamine green is recommended. This is because things like anterior basement membrane dystrophy can accelerate tear film breakup time and lead to chronic stimuli, or things like superior limbic keratoconjunctivitis, which is often clinically missed, uh, may also cause persistent symptoms which are similar to neuropathic disease. They must be ruled out. Tear film tests such as tear breakup time, osmolarity, and interferometry can be very useful. For example, a very rapid tear breakup time may also trigger signals mimicking chronic burning or pain in an otherwise normal neurosensory system. If the patient is experiencing intense discomfort 
and all of these tests are normal, then the preparacane challenge test may be used. In this test, one drop of 0.5% preparacane hydrochloride is instilled and the patient reports to what degree his or her pain is muted. This is best assessed by asking them on a scale of 0 to 10 what their level of discomfort is prior to insertion, wait 90 seconds, and then ask them the same question. On a scale of 0 to 10, what is your level of discomfort? I oftentimes do not tell the patients that I am putting in anesthetic so that they are not aware that their pain will change upon installation of the drop. This test assists in determining the degree of centralization. Any peripheral nociception is nullified. It basically wipes out their ability to detect pain or sensation at the surface of the eye. It's an anesthetic. However, if the patient reports a change in pain level after installation of preparacane, say for example from an 8 on a scale of 0 to 10, down to 4 out of 10, then we infer that approximately 50% of the pain may stem from centralized dysfunction, which is pain that is beyond the level of the cornea. This is also useful from a prognostic standpoint in explaining to the patient by instilling or implementing by implementing topical therapies such as autologous serum tears or other management strategies that affect the surface of the eye, we should be able to improve your level of discomfort by 50%, for example. Another tool available for diagnosis in clinical practice is in vivo confocal microscopy, which allows visualization of the corneal subbasal nerve plexus and may demonstrate nerve morphology changes. Now, not many practices have this, but if you do, this can be used on these patients as well. The appearance of certain alterations of normal anatomy, such as microneuromas, has been associated with corneal neuropathic disease in several studies. Microneuromas are essentially like little short circuits. They're associated with the something called ectopic discharge, which is spontaneous firing of neurons, which creates that signal and leads to chronic discomfort. Now, from a management standpoint, management of neuropathic pain is challenging. There has generally been a lack of understanding of this disorder with respect to corneal disease. Although this has been changing recently, I often find that these patients, when they're referred to my office, it's for dry eye disease. Everything seems to find its way into the dry eye bucket. Now, because inflammation seems to be such a critical factor for inciting phys physiologic change in both the peripheral and central portions of the nervous system, that has to be one of the things we address. Anti-inflammatory therapy is essentially one of the primary cornerstones of the treatment regimen. Now, for anti-inflammatory therapy, oftentimes what we are doing in clinical practice is initiating treatment with steroids over a few weeks to try to quiet that inflammation down fairly rapidly. We can also use things that have more of a chronic effect on the immune response, aka immunomodulators, things like cyclosporin or lefitograst. And those can be helpful for controlling inflammation once we get the corneal levels down. Measurement of inflammation is difficult to do in clinical practice, 
but we have to assume that there is at least some level of inflammation occurring for that sensitization to have taken place. As with any other disease, it's best to catch this stuff early. Minimizing the ability to generate nociceptive signals may also be helpful. So any therapy that protects the cornea and or boosts the tear film will likely be a part of the therapeutic plan as well. This may include items such as meibomian gland targeted procedures, which provide an improvement in the protective barrier so that the tear film remains stable under more adverse conditions, i.e. wind, etc., or things like scleral lenses, which really provide a hard and fast barrier against the outside environment. Both of those things can help to limit the induction of signals in that sensitized state. So it helps the patient feel better and reduces the amount of signal that travels up and is amplified into pain. Neuroregenerative therapies such as autologous serum tears can be quite useful in these patients. This is a treatment that I employ regularly in this patient group. In fact, I would say if there is a high suspicion for either peripheral sensitization, aka early neuropathic disease, or even more advanced disease, it's still something that I found to be helpful for the majority of the patients that I see. Now, there's a whole separate discussion that we could do on percentages, etc. But if, as a general rule, if the patient has a pretty otherwise healthy-looking cornea, i.e. is experiencing pain without stain, then I'll employ a higher concentration of serum tears, such as 50%, and have them use that four times a day. In addition, patients that have contributing systemic disease and other forms of peripheral neuropathy, think diabetics with other, um, say, think diabetics with peripheral neuropathy in their feet or their hands, they might show improvement with treatments such as alpha-lipoic acid, which is an over-the-counter supplement, or omega-3 fatty acids. For alpha-lipoic acid, this is again an OTC supplement, and I generally will have patients start off with 600 milligrams two to three times a day. For patients who have centralized neuropathy or centralized neuropathic pain and who do not respond well to topical preparacaine, for example, that patient that went from an 8 before the installation of preparacaine and stayed at an 8 or sometimes paradoxically increased after the installation of preparacaine, here we need to employ things like systemic medications and alternative therapies, which are useful for maintaining improved functionality. We're trying to get these patients more comfortable so they can get through their day. These can include things like Lyrica or Gabapentin, tricyclic antidepressants, and anti-epileptic medications. Now these are all CNS active and the use of these will vary by the state you're in, so make sure that you check with your state regulations on scope of practice. Oftentimes, if it's something that's beyond a GABA inhibitor, like Lyrica or Gabapentin, I'm trying to coordinate with the patient's primary care physician, with a pain management specialist, pain management specialist, or a neurologist um, for help in obtaining these types of medications for the patients. Alternative therapies such as acupuncture have been shown to be helpful 
in patients with chronic pain in meta-analysis. This is more than just anecdotal information. And finally, in a significant percentage of patients with severe centralized pain, I enlist the help of pain management specialists. Now, these aren't available everywhere. Again, reaching out to the patient's primary care physician or neurologist can be helpful in situations where you do not have access to pain management. These practitioners, specifically pain management specialists, may opt to perform periocular nerve blocks using lidocaine and dexamethasone or things like radiofrequency ablation of periorbital nerves or other employ other advanced systemic therapies. This is an eye-related problem. So as optometrists, we can provide insight to these other practitioners on what's going on as long as we are confident in our diagnosis and can explain what is going on with the patient and why we need their help. I found in working with pain management specifically, but also with neurology, that if you have a good understanding for what is going on with the patient, they're more than happy to collaborate with you on their care. An important management aspect to consider is that these patients are suffering, and this is a source for emotional stress and exhaustion. These patients will often cry in your office or have seen multiple practitioners and are losing hope that anything can be done to change their situation. This obviously comes with that depression and anxiety as a comorbidity. So make sure your patients have the resources and support to access options to maintain their mental well-being. This is not a commonly encountered area in eye care, but is a critical one from a longitudinal standpoint. Relief of neuropathic pain increases the prognosis for improving functionality and can be vital for improving the patient's quality of life. I also have noticed that in explaining what's going on with these patients, this is oftentimes the first time that they have ever heard anyone use those words neuropathic pain with their eye. And even just having a different diagnosis and an understanding for how we are going to approach this differently gives them hope. It also is critical to impress upon them that this is not a quick process, that it often takes months and sometimes even a year or more for us to gain significant improvement. But having worked with dozens of neuropathic pain patients in my clinic, these things are welcomed by the patients. Corneal neuropathic pain is a challenging entity that is often confusing and frustrating for both the patient and the clinician. Knowledge of the ideology and pathologic process of neuropathic pain is growing, as is clinical awareness of this potentially debilitating disorder. We can expect to have increased data regarding its prevalence in the near future. With these changes and increasing awareness, it seems likely that the way that we approach patients with pain without stain will be much different and hopefully change for the better in the coming years. Does Dr. Hauser's article now have you wondering how many of your dry eye patients have neuropathic pain? What, if anything, will you do about it? Share your thoughts with us at kroman, that's K-R-O-M-A-N, at bmctoday.com. We're halfway through the episode, and you know what that means. Well, it just means we're halfway through the episode. 
Anyway, next up you're going to hear the trials and tribulations of Justin Bazan, optometrist and owner of Park Slope High in Brooklyn, New York, as he made his way from student to employee and then on to OD owner, while seeking to find his place in optometry after graduating from optometry school. Here's his story. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in optometry. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. The excitement of graduating from optometry school was wrapped in a naivety that I recognize only now as I look back upon my experience. I was unaware then of the innumerable paths that this profession offers. I thought graduation was merely the conclusion of my optometric education and the beginning of me becoming an optometrist. To my surprise, the transition from student to optometric physician was not so simple. I've since come to realize that optometry is not merely a job, nor even a profession. Optometry is a journey, at least for me it's been. I'll describe for you my journey and offer some advice that may help anyone reading this who shares a mindset similar to my own. For me, optometry school was challenging. Not academically, grades never mattered much to me, but more because of the expectation for one to conform and follow a certain standardization. The importance of being held to a standard of care was not lost on me, but I noted the way it crushed creativity. I've always been an independent thinker, and although independent thought was not curbed per se during optometry school, it was not fostered and certainly not rewarded. The mentality I took on as a student was that I had to learn particular things to pass a test and do those things exactly as others had instructed me to do them. I became proficient at recognizing what was important, learning why it was important, and then mastering it to the appropriate level. This has proven to be a critical business skill. One thing I failed at, however, was learning the importance of networking. Joining student clubs or community-based organizations such as the American Optometric Student Association didn't appeal to me. Being involved in anything beyond the minimum needed to graduate and pass boards just didn't seem worth the time. Networking was a missed opportunity that would have put me ahead in reaching my goals. Students who are involved in the aforementioned groups get to attend conferences during which important connections are often made. I have seen firsthand how those who attend these conferences network and establish connections that accelerate their paths to success. I've seen students who have networked well land their dream job even before graduating. Many others have been able to accelerate their paths to success by making important connections early on. Many others have been able to accelerate their path to success by making important connections early on. I, unfortunately, was not one of those students and had to find work in the Help Wanted ads. The four years flew by. I graduated, took a few months off to enjoy New York City, and then entered the workforce. My first job at a large regional chain freed me from the institutionalized restrictions of optometry school. It was the first time I felt connected to patients in that the care I was providing to them was my own. I began to explore different styles of delivering care and tailoring the patient experience. The robotic protocols of student mentality dissolved and the creative, passionate provider in me emerged. At first, it was all about showing up, putting in a solid day, and then forgetting about work as I threw myself full force into the epic offerings of New York City. However, after some time, the days began to feel the same and the job became a grind. 
something was off. There looms something more than just showing up, seeing patients, and then living a life free of eye docs after work. I began to think optometry was more than just what I do. It became a piece of who I am. I began to see that the profession of optometry is more than just patient care. The opportunity was there for it to be exponentially more rewarding. My mentality had moved from a student to employee, and now it continued to evolve into that of an owner. Although I was not formally defined as a manager, I began to soak up the business knowledge. My entrepreneurial spirit began to emerge. There was an abundance of knowledge to be absorbed. Real world practical knowledge, everything from inventory to merchandising, from human resources to accounting, and of course, sales. I used what I learned and began to work as if I owned the practice. Often I hear docs in retail situations say they just spin and grin. No matter what your work situation, always view it as an opportunity to learn and advance you along your career path. The business knowledge and the skills that I gained beyond the clinical skills of an eye doctor increased how rewarding my work felt. It became evident that I not only liked the business aspects of optometry, but I was also going to be great at it. The offices I worked in crushed their projections and patients were raving. Even with the success, however, once the way I was providing care evolved past the company's comfort level, I hit a ceiling and I was given the opportunity to strike out on my own. I had a hunger for business knowledge and although I was a voracious reader, it was hands-on experience that I valued most. At this time, I began the fill-in phase of my career, which allowed me to get out and experience what other offices were doing. Finding fill-in work in New York City was as easy as heading to the job listing tab on my optometry school's website. Today, there are even more ways, including email lists and social media. On the horizon, there will be companies and the related apps to help match ODs with their ideal fill-in work. By ping-ponging my way among all five of New York City's boroughs, I learned a lot of things that I would incorporate into my own office one day and even more things that I would do. For example, I realized that many offices don't focus on the patient experience. It was hard for patients to book an appointment or find out key information about the office and then the office experience was not something they looked forward to. I would focus on creating a great online presence, use online scheduling, implement advanced technologies, and ensure that they would look forward to their visit. The experience was eye-opening, enlightening, and encouraging. Often, in this period, I thought to myself, wow, if this practice is operating this way and it's been successful for the past 30 years, I know I'm going to be just fine. For example, I saw offices that were chaotic and poorly run, and others that seemingly had no accounting system, a rotating roster of employees, and poor patient care doing decently well, so I knew the bar was set pretty low. Meeting and engaging with OD owners enriched my optometric experience and introduced me to people who shared a similar passion for the entrepreneurial side of eye care. Optometry was taking me on an adventure and I was ready for it. It was time for me to do things my way and open my own independent practice. Opening a practice cold was exhilarating and exhausting, but also satisfying and rewarding. It was the ultimate canvas for my passion, creativity, and professional skills to combine in a way that added layers of enjoyment to my life. At times, it felt like I was taking a few years off to deal with a seemingly endless to-do list and put out what felt like daily fires, but looking back, opening my own practice was probably one of the most valuable experiences of my life. 
Opening cold was tough, but it gave me the skill set and mentality that helped me understand that I can accomplish anything I set my mind to. It helped give me perspective that anything is possible, and if I have an idea, I should feel confident in seeing it to fruition. Hard work does pay off, and the days that may seem long, but the years will fly by. Stick with it, stay the course, and in no time, the feeling of accomplishment will settle in. I found my tribe when I was welcomed into a couple of groups of optometric practice owners. Whether online or in real life, networking with these like-minded individuals has always led to new opportunities, provided guidance and help, and allowed me to share what I've learned. These passionate practitioners also pointed me in the direction of other avenues in the eye care profession and industry and showed me how to navigate them. Optometry will provide you with memorable and rewarding experiences throughout life. As you make your way through optometry school, have faith that you need not to be concerned about the path you take or even the final destination. Just recognize that it's a journey and enjoy the ride. How similar or different was your experience finding your place in optometry? Did you settle in easily or did you have to test out a few different paths before figuring out which was best for you? Alas, we've reached the last segment of the episode, and this month that means it's time for the up-close interview between MOD's associate editor Katie Herman and Damon Durker, who is Director of Optometric Services at Eye Surgeons of Indiana in Indianapolis. Ready to hear what inspired Dr. Durker to pursue a career in optometry, or what makes up a typical day for him? Let's find out. Hello, Dr. Damon Durker. How are you today? I am doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, You ready to get started? Let's get ready to rock and roll here. Awesome. So what first interested you in optometry? Why did you choose to become an optometrist? Looking back at my path to become an optometrist, probably my biggest motivation was my father. My father had... um, you know, a systemic condition that led to cataract formation pretty early in life. And this was back before we were using lens implants. So he had cataract surgery in the early 70s, was aphakic for the most of his adult life and relied on contact lenses and glasses to be able to function. So working with optometry and ophthalmology, Um, He really needed those services to be able to live a normal life uh, as an aphakic 30-year-old. So I saw all of the things that optometrists had done to help my father, and that really inspired me and uh, led me down the path of uh, becoming an optometrist myself. Okay, cool. Did you ever have a second option? Like, What would you have become if you didn't become an optometrist? I was always interested in health care and went into undergraduate um, as as pre-med and then you know kind of looked at my different options there and optometry just was the best fit so I I honed in on that probably second and third year of of college and really never looked back and I you know the optometry has provided so many opportunities for me to not only provide patient care but leadership within my practice, leadership within the optometric community, both, you know, locally, regionally, nationally, 
ability to educate peers, to be able to work with industry. So it's, it's done so much more than I would have ever expected. You are the founder of the Dry Eye Bootcamp. Tell us about this. What sparked the idea? So Dry Eye, you know, became something of great interest to me probably about 10 years ago, uh, around 2012. There was a lot that was happening in the space um, with new diagnostics, new therapeutics. There was a huge need in my patient base and in my practice to provide this care. In my uh, local community, there really wasn't anybody leading the way in dry eye. So I saw this as an opportunity to really educate myself, provide better patient care. And it was a little bit of a challenge because there wasn't anything that was boy, go to this program or read this book or look at this uh, video series to kind of get caught up to speed on things. I had to really seek that out and, you know, talk with a lot of colleagues, talk with a lot of industry partners, uh, read lots of different journal articles. So I found myself trying to find this information that I needed to be successful in one spot and it just wasn't there. So I thought, boy, this is kind of crazy. And here's an opportunity maybe for me to develop something so that other optometrists and ophthalmologists that are motivated to do these things, they don't have to go searching. We can bring up something that's prepackaged and fun and engaging and interactive so they can get, you know, jump started on this uh, part of their career. So I came up with the idea of dry eye boot camp, and it was something that I wanted to do something totally different. So we dressed up in fatigues and had bullhorns and <laughs> just made it fun and, and engaging and, and brought in you know, top speakers and really wanted to make sure that people could go and not just say, boy, this is how you have to do dry eye, but hear it from four or five different experts of how they're doing that mm -hmm. in their practice, what works, what doesn't work. So getting different perspectives but the ability to do that in a, in a single day or in a weekend, uh, a dedicated program that we have, you know, provided CE credit for that, but it's more than CE. It's, it's really about taking what you've learned from that program and implementing that. And, and then, I, you know, developing the right program and tools for these uh, doctors to be able to succeed in their practices. Wow. Yeah. That's all so amazing. <laughs> So where do you see yourself professionally in the next five, 10 years? So I think that I will continue in my professional career to do the same things that I'm doing now, which is a variety of things that are interesting and hopefully impactful. I just got done finishing my role as president of the Indiana Optometric Association. I will continue to be an active volunteer for that organization in various capacities. I am getting more and more into clinical research. A lot of things in the dry eye space. We're completing a couple uh, trials right now. We're looking at some potential for larger trials here in the coming months to years. So I look forward to building that out in my practice. I uh, continue to have a high volume referral center, uh, ocular surface disease clinic, but also I have a lot of interest in you know, my, taking care of my patients with glaucoma, macular degeneration. There's so many things that we need to be doing as optometrists to provide medical care for these patients that are growing in numbers. And I look at all of the things that I'm doing to stay busy. I think I'm gonna keep doing those things, but also continue to educate and lead and build a great team around me so that we can provide more care, better care for more patients. 
And so that sounds like you're super busy. <laughs> and so what is a typical day like in your life? What keeps you busy, fulfilled, and passionate? Well, I am typically, um, my work week, I'm, I'm in the clinic usually four days a week. And depending on what types of patients I'm seeing, whether it's strictly ocular surface disease or post-ops, retina, glaucoma, et cetera, I'll see between 30 and 60 patients today. I've got a, a large uh, technician team and a couple students from uh, IU that help support me there. And I enjoy working at that pace. Um, during that time, I'm also answering a lot of emails and text messages from, from colleagues and, and industry folks about various uh, various things, patient care, um, you know, new developments in the field, research, et cetera. And then now increasingly over the last year, I'm doing a lot of virtual educational programs, both CE events and promotional, and those are tend to be kind of early evening programs. Um, that along with some leadership things within the practice, uh, first part of my week are, you know, 10, 12 hour days usually. Uh, and then I kind of ease into the weekend and, and then try to, when I get home, you know, put my phone away and concentrate on my family and go to baseball games and go run around to the pool. So it's, it's that work-life balance that everyone's always trying to, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, work out. And I think that is, is a challenge for sure, but I, I work hard and then try to kind of put that away when I uh, am done for the day so that I can concentrate on the things that, that matter most. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So to wrap things up, tell us something about you that not many people know. I think one thing that most people don't know is that I was actually a music major in college. Oh, I, fun. <laughs> um, I studied classical guitar and played piano as well. And one of the things that brought me to Indiana University School of Optometry from Minnesota, where I grew up, was their music school. They have a top three music school along with the top three optometry school. And we, uh, I was able to study guitar for three years while I was in Bloomington and still enjoy doing that and performing uh, certain social events, et cetera. So I think that most people don't know that uh, music is a passion of mine and still do quite a few things with that. But uh, yeah, I think that's an interesting fact that most people don't know. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, Damon, thank you so much for taking the time and being our up close feature for this, uh, this month. <laughs> it was great speaking with you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Don't you love learning fun little facts about your colleagues? Now you know that if you want to serenade someone while at an upcoming optometry meeting, all you need is a guitar and Damon Durker. That'll do it for this episode. Catch us back here next month for the start of pumpkin spice season and more mod articles read by your colleagues. As always, feel free to get in touch with us if you have any comments or suggestions. Just drop us a line at kroman at bmctoday.com. Oh look, here's an email from someone now. Until next time, be well and take care.